Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Today we'll look at dealing with multiple identities by way of film. Kate Novak's documentary, The Gospel According to Andre, is about fashion journalist Andre Leontali, an African-American who grew up in the Jim Crow South, who overcame bullying for being gay and rose to the position of editor-at-large of Vogue magazine. Tom Shepard's documentary, Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America, reveals untold stories of LGBT refugees and asylum seekers who fled intense persecution in their native countries. To begin, a novel way to view art. Drive-through ATL is not to be confused with the varsity, though if you believe that art nourishes the soul, this is something of a feast. The one-time pop-up event is Saturday, and joining me now are Neda Abgari, the executive director of the Creatives Project, and Sarah Santamaria, an alumna artist of the Creatives Project, as well as one of the featured artists in the event. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. One of the things that you've mentioned is how you want to offer a showcase of art that is safe, but not digital. Would you walk us through what inspired you to create Drive Through Atlanta? Absolutely. So our organization works with a number of artists who are part of our residency program and then give back to underserved communities in Atlanta. Being that COVID has popped up, <laughs> all of us have been having weekly meetings together to really kind of figure out ways to move during this time. It was during one of our brainstorm sessions <laughs> when we were really asking the artists how we could continue to support their work and engaging them and connecting them with our audiences that one of our residents, Mason Webb, 
had this idea for a drive-through or a car wash, some sort of platform where we would present art in a non-digital fashion. So as soon as Mason came up with this idea of a drive-through, everyone just was so excited. (laughs) It really gave us the inspiration that we were looking for. And based on the resources that we had available to us, it was actually a really feasible idea. So we all ran with it. How does it work? So the way it works is our guests have been advised (laughs) to download an exhibition map. They will pull into our parking lot. They will drive into the parking lot where our studios are. Guests can tune in on site to a drive through specific radio station hosted by Floyd Hall to learn more about the exhibiting artists the day of. They will be able to, and then they will drive through the parking lot uh, to see the art at a socially distant space that is safe. And literally everyone sits in their cars, drives through the parking lot, looks at the art, They can purchase the art online through our website and listen to interviews that are being conducted, our FM radio being broadcast from the parking lot. (laughs) This is similar to what Chris Escobar from the Plaza Theater explained to us about their drive-in movies. I, I like how radio is integral to this event. I'm curious... What is the array of artwork and how closely can people view it through car windows? That is a great question, Lois. I'm sure everyone's wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Array of art. We will have murals. We will have art installations. And we will have 2D works of art. The distance is probably about 15 to 20 feet. So we have selected works that will be read really well from that distance. Um, some of the works have actually been enlarged to to add to the, the viewing experience. So it's about 15 to 20 feet. And how will you ensure everyone's safety during the event? So we have hired some security. We have Atlanta police officers. There will be three off-duty officers on site to make sure that everyone stays in their cars. We have a parking company that will be directing the traffic. And really, there will be distance. We will all be wearing our masks. The artists will be on site. And we will have to make sure that no one gets out of their cars. For the event, you're featuring 29 different artists. How did you select which artists would participate? So drive through ATL is happening on site at a new shopping center called AAD. It stands for Atlanta Arts District. A number of artists and the Creatives Project have set up shop there, and the artists for this first exhibition were selected as they have space on site. So the Creatives Project alumni artists are included, the 
Creatives Project current fellows are included. And then we also included artists who are working out of the Atlanta Arts District currently. Sarah, you are among the artists featured. What led you to work with the Creatives Project? Well, my involvement with the Creatives Project uh, dates back to a couple of years ago when I was an artist in residence. The program itself had a huge positive impact in my professional development, so I decided to stay engaged with the organization, and I am currently one of the alumni artists that that has a studio space in the AAD location. And, and I'm also participating in the event, exhibiting one uh, installation. How would you describe your work? Well, as an artist and as an outsider, my practice is informed by ideas of global migration and themes of otherness and alienation. And recently I've been making sculptural installations that focus pretty much on the concept of um, see-through borders and barriers and the idea of spatial division to underline some of the invisible boundaries, you know, social, economical, political boundaries that multicultural hybrid identities are facing in the times of extreme anti-immigrant sentiment and exclusion. And and for this time being, I I wanted to do an installation called Shelter in Place in response to COVID-19. It is going to be a collaboration with two performance artists, Vanessa Yvonne Jagodinsky and Amelia Razor. And so it will be a performative installation that consists on a small apartment layout that will be painting, painted on the ground with suggested walls, kind of like a see-through house that people will drive around to. And the performances inside will convey the emotional and physical spectrum of daily life confinement in a domestic space. So both artists will basically enter this semi, semi-imaginary domestic space and they will reflect on their own confinement experiences with those boundaries in mind. I must say you live up to the name of the organization. Sarah Santa Maria and Neda Abkari of the Creatives Project. Thank you very much for joining us and I congratulate you on the ambitious project of Drive Through ATL. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you so much. Sarah Santa Maria, the Creative Project alumna and featured artist in the upcoming event, along with Neda Abgari, Executive Director of the Creatives Project. You can check out Drive-Through ATL this Saturday from 2 to 7 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Out on film, Atlanta's LGBTQ Film Festival and Georgie Quality, a statewide organization working to advance fairness, safety, and opportunities for the LGBTQ community throughout Georgia, are presenting a Pride Month virtual film festival. 
The festival begins today with the award-winning and timely Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America. Tom Shepard directed the film. He joins us now along with Jim Farmer, director of Out on Film, the festival director of Out on Film. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Great to be here. How does this differ from the film festival that occurs each fall, Jim? This is our first official full-fledged online film festival. So we're excited about it. And we're, you know, what we're doing with the series, we're, you know, having the films and talkbacks and director discussions after every film. And we're doing a month-long series with Georgia Quality, some films that we're very, very proud to show. How did your two organizations come together for this? We've worked together in the past, but I mean, Eric Polk with Georgia Quality, you know, reached out, I guess about a month ago with a possibility. And we've spent the last, you know, three or four weeks just sort of getting a schedule together, making sure that we were ready, you know, from a technology point of view. I mean, that, that it's, it's sort of a, a bit of a challenge moving a festival online, but it, it takes some set. But we, we've just spent the last three or four weeks um, getting this schedule together, working at logistics and getting ready for opening night. Tom, the festival will kick off with your documentary, Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America. First, I want to congratulate you on creating this film. It is superb. Thank you. And it is extremely moving. Can you give us an overview of the film? Sure. Well, in 2014, I was volunteering at a refugee resettlement organization in the Bay Area where I live, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that's Jewish Family and Community Services. You know, and at that time, um, LGBTQ rights certainly were uh, accelerating in the U.S. and in many Western countries. And we had, you know, uh, marriage equality, same-sex marriage was was kind of steamrolling toward the Supreme Court and would soon become the law of the land. But if you looked at other places, and particularly in the Middle East and in Africa, the um, situation for many LGBTQ people had gotten worse having sort of state-sponsored homophobia and often sort of persecution and violence at the hands of family. And so it just sort of occurred to me looking around, most people in my sort of circle couldn't tell you how a refugee was resettled or even the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. And so it felt like a really good opportunity. And in fact, the U.S. State Department for the first time was providing a big grant to uh, Jewish Family Services to resettle LGBTQ refugees for the first time. So we thought this might be a good moment, and I was starting to build some relationships with, with those refugees. Would you define the difference, please, between refugee and asylum seeker? 
Sure. So a couple of the folks in our film who are gay men, one Subi from Syria and the other Junior from Congo, they, they fled their countries and, and went to a country of transit in the Middle East um, and in Africa. And there they were able to go to the United Nations, um, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and basically make a case that they couldn't go back to their countries. And the United Nations has an adjudication process in which you can apply based on this sort of well-founded fear. And if conferred, then um, you can be resettled in a place like the US or Canada or Europe. And so those folks will come into the United States and often be helped by refugee resettlement organizations that will you know, give them the sort of the lay of the land, help them with the sort of modicum of refugee benefits. An asylum seeker, on the other hand, will cross into the U United States, either maybe on a student visa or a tourist visa, and then they will make a claim, I can't go back to my own country. And the U.S. has its own sort of adjudication process through the immigration courts and an asylum hearing. In that case, you, you don't actually have any benefits. So asylum seekers really have to kind of make it on their own um, as they go through a fairly lengthy legal process to try and claim asylum. Mm. So you became aware of the situation in 2014. How many years did it take to complete the documentary? It's, it's been now almost uh, five and a half, six years. We're having the broadcast of the film on public television on a, on a show called Doc World, distributed by World Channel later in the month. So it has been a, a long journey. But I think, you know, Lois, especially with folks like this who are coming to the U.S., many of them have experienced trauma, if not torture. You know, the idea of sort of shoving a camera in their faces right away is... is it's really a delicate matter. So in this case, I think the time we spent maybe served the project in terms of being able to develop trust and sort of take it step by step. Oh, yes. And that comes through in the film because they fear for their own lives. They fear for their family, the families they've left in their home countries. In terms of the arc of time for the narrative of the film, it begins in a much more hopeful time. In 2015, when same-sex marriage was legalized in the U.S., and then we get on to more difficult years. But before we talk about that, I wondered... How did you discover the cases of the people whom you follow, Marianne Cheyenne, Subi, and Junior? I had been very fortunate to, to be working, to be volunteering for a few months at Jewish Family and Community Services, and that's where I met Subi and Junior. Subi was in Turkey waiting for his resettlement papers. And so I was able to Skype him and we were even able to film some sessions on Skype before he came to the U.S. Um, in the case of Cheyenne and Marie, who are asylum seekers, I'd met a woman in Marin County in Northern California. Her name's Melanie Nathan. And she had started an organization that works specifically with queer refugees and asylum seekers in Africa. 
And she had reached out to me and said, you won't believe this couple who had the fortitude to kind of have their relationship in Angola, in the capital of Angola, Luanda. And they were, you know, musicians and performers, also popsicle entrepreneurs had been very successful with their own business there. But um, people in their neighborhood were beginning to harass them. And even the mother of one of them tried to poison them. And they just felt like they couldn't stay and be together and got a student visa to come to the US. And um, so I learned about them and immediately met them and were just so blown away. I mean, as hard as it is for men um, and refugees, it's doubly hard for women who are often needing to get permission from their husbands or fathers or uncles to be able to leave. So what they were doing and what they were risking was was pretty extraordinary to me, and I felt very, very lucky to have met them. And Ms. Nathan seems like a magical fairy godmother of sorts. I mean, she she does astonishing work on behalf of these asylum seekers. Same-sex marriage had just become legalized in the U.S. in 2015. In other countries, being gay can be a prison sentence or punishable by death. It's shocking to learn of some of the stories that the characters featured in your film share. Can you tell us a little bit about what each of them endured in their home countries? You know, this, this question also really gets at the unique experiences, I think, that LGBTQ refugees have. I mean, uh, the refugee model in this country, in the U.S., has always really been based on families, right? So a family might flee a war-torn region of Iraq, for instance, and they'll get their refugee status and resettle, say if they resettle in the Bay Area, they'll immediately be connected to, you know, members of their own diaspora. So maybe connected to a community center or a mosque or groceries in, in different parts of the Bay Area that have developed over time. But if you're a gay Iraqi, quite possibly the last people you want to see are other Iraqis, because you're, you're not fleeing with family, you're often fleeing from family. And that's what we found um, to be just so horrific in a way, is that LGBTQ refugees find themselves at much higher risk for isolation, because they don't have those initial sort of footholds into the culture. And so the risk for more PTSD, more depression, more internal displacement, and, you know, they, they are recovering in many cases from, from trauma, not, not just at the hands of society and police, but again, we're talking about their own parents or their own siblings. And so that was pretty heartbreaking. And the question then for us, I think in the film was, okay, well, who's gonna step forward here to meet these, these special needs of folks like this? My name is Subhina Haas. I'm a refugee and I am gay. I'm here to recount to you what I experienced and witnessed as a gay man in my country. In the name of all vulnerable refugees, I urge you to heed this plea. The 
LGBT is not just a terminology invented by the West itself, but there is an LGBT community in the Middle East and in Africa, and they stand together and they want their right to. And the suffering that these protagonists, that gay people endure in these countries, indeed, is horrific, and it, it knows no religious boundary. Marie's mother is a Christian minister, and she believes Marie is ungodly. And you mentioned she tries to poison her and Cheyenne. With Subi, we learn about beheadings of gay men in Syria and of his own father rejecting him, a friend who was a former friend who ends up with ISIS offering a fatwa because he thinks that Subi's blood will ennoble him for killing such a sinner. It's mind-boggling to learn these stories. But something that stood out to me, Tom, is the people in your film are all highly educated. Perhaps Junior did not have the university education, but the others are not only fluent in English, the education level and socioeconomic backgrounds of these characters just sheds more light on how horrific it must be for people from their countries who don't have a command of English or the knowledge of how to go about seeking refuge or asylum. Well, you're, you raise a really good point, Lois. And um, in fact, it was one thing that was refreshing because I think, you know, most Americans don't know this story. I've probably not maybe personally met um, a refugee or an asylum seeker. And I think this, you know, there's this notion that, that refugees are poor and uneducated and bedraggled. And um, certainly that's not the case with folks that we were following and, and you know, many, many people who are who are seeking asylum. But yes, as hard as it was for the four people in this film, and there certainly are some dark corners that excavate, it's that much harder for people who, for instance, don't have good language skills or maybe have not been in university and had to, to navigate some of these um, bureaucracies before. So it's really true. And, and in fact, the asylum seekers that we're seeing on the southern border, the United States-Mexico border, many of them from Central America, are getting to the border. And, and the, you know, the new policies under the Trump administration, the Remain in Mexico protocols, have really made it difficult for those folks to even connect to a customs office and even have their day in asylum court. So the odds are stacked against these folks. And it, it, it does kind of amazed me that some of them are able to kind of make it through. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up our southern border because certainly in the last few years, this has been a lightning rod. America's immigration policies revolving around Latinx communities have changed dramatically since 
the years when you began this film. I mean, you even had the United States ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, in your film. Why did you focus on refugee and asylum seekers from Africa and the Middle East rather than south of the U.S. border? Right. I mean, largely that was a sort of a a choice informed by the people that we were meeting and still relatively few of the refugees and asylum seekers that do come to the United States are members of the LGBTQ community. So I think who we were meeting and connecting with in, in that agency and who was sort of willing to step forward, the the cases on the border are so precarious, but that's a story that needs to be told because as hard as it was for the folks in Unsettled, our film, it's that much harder for folks who are making their way through through Mexico and are basically turned away at the border and often then very vulnerable to cartels and to kidnapping and, and being in a place where, where they don't have any stability. So, and many of those people who do kind of make it through um, end up in detention and that's a very important story that's not told in Unsettled, Um, the LGBTQ folks who land in detention and then are sort of persecuted again among the people that are in the detention center. So they're fleeing from persecution and then they find themselves in a situation where violence is happening to them once again while they're being detained. It's compounded tragedy. Yeah. Will that be your next documentary? I don't know. I mean, that's, that is an important story for sure. And, and there are many people doing really good work on the border. So I hope to see that film made. Mm. Jim, would you talk about the other films you'll screen in the festival? Absolutely. Um, on June 18th, we'll do The Gospel According to Andre, which is about Andre Leon Talley, fashion editor icon. After that, we have a film called Queering the Script, which is about fangirls and their, you know, how they have rallied around queer women on television. There was a period when a lot of queer characters were being killed. And it's really about how fangirls have really helped uh, discuss that and, and work with producers to make sure that there are positive portrayals. And it's really about positive portrayals of LGBT people on television. And the final film is called Changing the Game, which is a documentary about transgender athletes and some of the challenges they face as they get out to the world and, and, and are true to themselves and, and try to face their future. It's really about what they're dealing with right Are all of the films free to watch or will there be a ticket price? All of the films are free. Patrons are, can make donations if they want to, but the films are absolutely free. And I read that um, there will be some Q&A sessions afterwards. Who will participate? Right now we're working on, I guess, the middle sections, but we have Michael Barnett, the director of Changing the Game, confirmed for uh, July 2nd, and hopefully we'll have um, some talent confirmed for the other two films as well. The 33rd Out on Film Festival is planned for this September. Have you been discussing safety and health measures that would be implemented if there are to be in-person screenings? That That is our top priority. At this point, we're still, I guess, taking the temperature and finding out what's going to be happening 
We think some theaters will be open, but we need to check with them just to make sure it's safe. But also we need to think of the safety of our patrons and, you know, and whether or not they feel comfortable coming. So our hope is that we'll have maybe half a dozen or so live screenings, maybe some drive-in events as well. And then the rest of our screenings will more than likely be online, like what we're starting this summer. Jim Farmer is the festival director of Out on Film. He was joined by director Tom Shepard, whose documentary Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America, kicks off the Out on Film virtual festival today. In a moment, we'll hear about another great documentary for Pride Month, This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Andre Leontali spent his career writing about fashion, eventually becoming editor-at-large of Vogue. Yet it's hard to conceive of the towering figure as behind the scenes. He was the scene everywhere he went. Andre Leontali was a curator of style and among the most influential tastemakers of the past 50 years. Kate Novak created an outstanding documentary about Tally called The Gospel According to Andre. The film highlights his journey from the Jim Crow South to the runways of Paris. When I spoke with Kate Novak after the film opened in May of 2018, she explained when she first took interest in Tally. I mean, I had seen Andre in fashion documentaries for probably about 25 years. I I saw the movie Unzipped in 1995, and he always is in these over-the-top scene-stealing roles, but he's always in the position of commenting on other people, always sort of the supporting actor. And he has such an interesting and, I think, meaningful story as the first African-American man, really, in his level in the fashion industry that I thought his story really deserved to be told and that he was a character that was made for cinema. My job is to make sure that Vogue has the first entree into every door of every important house, be it a fashion house or the house of someone who has a great art collection, to be the first to get Madonna on the cover of Vogue. Oh, yes. Larger than life doesn't 
overstate Andre Leon Telly. Was it um, Mark Jacobs in your film who described him as operatic? It, it was. I mean, he's totally operatic. It's not just it's his size. He's six and a half feet tall. He wears these caftans. But it's also his sort of I always think of his personality as kind of volcanic. He has this kind of eruption of references and emotions around things that many of us think of as small and maybe incidental. But he's so moved by beauty. Um, you know, and not just fashion, but references from literature and film and music. So he's he really, like you said, he's larger than life in many ways. Would you talk about his early life? Absolutely. So the first time that I met Andre, I pitched the idea of a movie to him. And the idea really was I wanted to look at how his experience as a boy and the memories from childhood had sustained him in his adult life. And the very first thing that he said to me was, if we do this, I have to take you behind my childhood church in Durham, North Carolina, my Baptist church. I just remember going to church was the most important thing in life, getting up and getting dressed to go to church on Sunday. My grandmother got up. She made a pan of biscuits for me. I'd eat the whole pan of biscuits myself, get dressed, get in the car, then go to church. Amidst the Jim Crow South, the black church was the only place, really, in which African-American life and African-American identity was affirmed and valued. Um, so the idea really always was it was a little bit less about the fabulous closets full of Hermes boxes, which he does also have, and more about his experience growing up in the Jim Crow South. He was born in 1948, um, raised by his grandmother in a very loving home. She was a maid at Duke University. She cleaned the boys' dormitories. Um, and he always talks about cleanliness being close to godliness. Um, she kept a very clean home. And I think from a very early age, luxury for Andre was really connected to care. It was the biscuits that she would bake for him on Sunday. It was the beautiful clothes that she and his relatives wore to church on Sunday. Um, so I think luxury and care and maintenance are very rooted in Andre's autobiography and his history. And it, in particular, his history as an African-American man in America. Growing up in the Jim Crow South was a terrible time for people with humble aspirations. As a teenager in segregated Durham, what role did fashion play for the young Andre? He would walk to the Duke campus, and um, there's a very moving story you depict in the film. So Andre was an only child raised by his grandmother, and he had friends, but in many ways I think he was alone and loved fashion. Um, 
and he discovered Vogue magazine when he was about 12 years old at the Durham Public Library. And every Sunday after church, he would walk across the Duke campus and go to the newsstand to buy his issue of Vogue. It came out actually every two weeks then. Every Sunday after church, I'd have to go across town to the Duke East Campus, to the magazine stand, to get the Vogues. And one Sunday, I was going across the railroad tracks, and people threw rocks at me from a car. I wasn't wearing capes or anything. I was walking around in normal, like a sweater, like a ski sweater or something. And I thought that this was a bunch of white boys, a Duke, decided to throw rocks at me because I was walking the campus. But I was taught to rise above it and to be strong. I went to an all-black high school. And he, it is in many ways, I think, a metaphor for Andre in his adult life when he faced adversity and he faced opposition. He really just pushed on and really was driven by a very deep-seated and emotional love of fashion and of beauty and of style. Yeah, he said that his escape from reality was reading Vogue. What did he see, this rather sheltered, naive young guy in Durham, North Carolina, flipping through Vogue? What did that convey to him? Well, I think importantly, when Andre would flip through Vogue magazine as a boy, he saw black models. He saw Naomi Sims in the pages of Vogue magazine. And I think that it communicated to him, this is a world that he could go and he could work in. Um, You know, I think Vogue was at that time very literary. Um, You know, he would read about when he was a little bit older about Truman Capote's black and white ball. And I think it was a world beyond Durham that, you know, just had this pull for him. Um, You know, Vogue was full of stories. And I think he sort of sees the world in story. And so it was the perfect sort of, you know, I mean, he also read the Bible, but this was his other Bible. (laughs) Well, in addition to being very intelligent, Andre Leontali was also an excellent student, scholarship to Brown. And um, while he was at Brown, he connected with people in art and design at the Rhode Island School of Design. How did his intellect inform his self-concept and and ultimately his work in fashion, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I'm so happy you brought that up because I think the intellectual side of Andre sometimes gets lost or glossed over in his public persona, um, partly because he's so hilarious and so over the top. But one of the things that I did when I started researching this project was I went to Brown University where he got a master's in French literature, and I asked them for his master's thesis which he wrote on the representation of African women in the writing of Baudelaire and the painting of Delacroix. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of sort of as, you know, a young man where his head was at. And he, you know, then went to Brown University and right across the street was the Rhode Island School of Design. And he met, you know, sort of these wealthy, white, creative 
kids from New York City, from New Orleans. And, you know, he had grown up going to a really, really high quality African-American high school. But this was in some ways his first experience in a world that was predominantly white. Um, And he met kids who, you know, he talks about in the film how they would wake up in the morning and drink Bloody Marys, which was something that their parents did. So I think he had to adjust in some ways to a world that was very different. At the same time, whereas in Durham, he had been alone reading Vogue in his room, when he got to Rhode Island, he had a community of people who were equally as passionate about style and about fashion. Um, His friend from college or from graduate school, Reed Evans, talks about, you know, how they would play dress up in women's clothes on a Saturday night when they had nowhere to go. So I think many things came together there. Um, And he had with him, very importantly, inside of him already, the strength of the church and the unconditional love of his grandmother really, I think, carried him through. The 1970s seemed to be the ideal time for André Leontali to come of age professionally. Would you describe this scene and what part he played in it? So, I mean, I think in a way André is such a force that I think if he had arrived in New York City at any time that he would have made it, Um, you know, any time in his lifetime. Um, But he did arrive in New York City in 1974. It's a time when the city was much more affordable. And in some ways, when breaking into the fashion industry, it was sort of more permeable. Um, And, you know, he volunteered at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for Diana Vreeland and made such an impression on her. He had to put together this um, model for a show on Hollywood that she was curating. And he had to uh, piece together like a puzzle, these metal bathing suit pieces onto a model. And the way in which he did it just blew her away. And when she saw it, she said to him, now you will stay by my side. And I think from there, Andre really then had a mentor and he had an ally. And with her help, he got a job at Interview Magazine. And he was so passionate and so knowledgeable already about fashion that I think he just, everyone that he met, he impressed, whether it was Fran Lebowitz, Andy Warhol, Diana Vreeland, that he found this foothold in New York City. And Beth Ann Hardison, who's a good friend of his who was one of the sort of pioneering African-American models, talks in the film about how there was this downtown scene and everyone was different, but Andre was even more different, Mm -hmm. that he had this sense of being an immigrant, an outsider, but he just had this knowledge that he could drop on you. And, you know, he's, he's magnetic, and I think he just was this force. Anna Wintour says in the film that Andre was ambivalent talking about race, yet he made some impressive statements through his work. What was Scarlet in the Hood? So Scarlet, yeah, so Scarlet in the Hood was a spread that he did while he was working um, at Vanity Fair when Graydon Carter was the editor. And Andre had the idea to take that story 
and flip the roles of the blacks and the whites. So you have John Galliano is a servant in the house. Manolo Garden, uh, Manolo Blahnik, sorry, is the gardener. And then Naomi Campbell in this wildly expensive couture dress is Scarlett O'Hara. And, um, you know, Helmut Newton shot that. Andre Leontali art directed it. And Graydon Carter says in the film that Andre really was the only person who could have come up with that and then orchestrated that shoot. And it really says something about the value of black life um, through the pages of a mainstream American magazine. And, you know, that was in the mid-90s. And in some ways, it was before its time. Um, So that was a really important piece, you know, for the magazine and an important spread for Andre and his career. He never fell in love, or at least no lasting relationship that he speaks of. Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the saddest moments in the film is when he talks about how he never fell in love. And, you know, I think fashion was sort of his first love and um, took all of his attention and his time. But it, he says it's the great flaw in his life. And I think it's it's a real regret. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think Andre also has a very sort of 18th century idea of love. It's all about longing. And in some ways, fashion and fashion magazines are about lo- longing and dreaming for a, for a more beautiful existence. So it's in some ways, it was a good fit for him career-wise in terms of his romantic aspirations. But I think that's, that's one of the big sadnesses in his life. Yeah. Oh, but that's a, an interesting take you have on that unrequited aspect, sort of like a poet. Absolutely. Um, No, I think that it's that idea of longing, um, you know, which, you know, is is a can be a beautiful sort of exquisite feeling. But ultimately, as human beings, we still have that need for a connection. So I think that that's it's a sad moment in the film. Kate, I was hoping you'd talk about the 2016 election and how you used it within this film. Absolutely. So we began filming with Andre in the late summer of 2016, you know, which really meant that we were filming with him during the heat of the, um, you know, Trump-Clinton campaign. And, you know, I always, I view Andre's story as an American success story. It really is the story of an African-American man's success in America with all of the difficulties that he faced. And as we were filming, he spoke a lot about how far we had come as a country since he was a boy living in Durham under Jim Crow with his grandmother. And, you know, in a very sort of um, a uplifting way, you know, look at the progress that we've made. At the same time, as the election and or as the campaign unfolded, it was hard to deny that perhaps the progress that he had seen and many of us had seen wasn't what we thought that it was. We hadn't come as far as we thought. Ugly and dirty. So, you know, although I am from the South and I really realized that we had made advances by the time I got to Vogue, there were still some moments like that. They used to call me Queen Kong. A woman in Saint Laurent who used to call me Queen Kong. 
I was like an ape. King Kong, Queen Kong. They were saying I was a gay ape, Queen Kong. People always say, how do you do it? How have you put up with this world for so long? I say, through my faith and my ancestors, you know? They put up with slavery for so long. <laughs> Lynching. Voter suppression. Beatings. When you see these things, when I was growing up, when you seeing these pictures on the television, they were amazing to me. Dogs being let out on people, fire hoses, white cops kicking women. It all impacted me too. But I had to move on. I had to get on with my career. So, you know, in some ways it was this rude awakening and what we were seeing on the national political stage was very different from his personal narrative. And, um, you know, the, the two stories sort of collided, the personal and the political. And in some ways I think that the election that we see unfold in the film and the, ultimately Trump's um, victory, to me, makes Andre's story seem more urgent. <laughs> Do you think that ultimately Andre Leontali sees the story of his career as having a happy ending? I think he does. I think he sees his career as a success. Um, I think if he thinks back over his life, you know, to that moment where he saw Vogue magazine at, you know, the public library in Durham, to what he consider, considers the pinnacle of his career, which was writing the first Michelle Obama cover story in 2009, I think it's hard to say that that wasn't a success. Um, was it perfect? Was it without despair? No. But I think his trajectory in fashion is a success story, and I think that he views it that way. Filmmaker Kate Novak, director of The Gospel According to Andre, out on film will screen the documentary as part of their virtual festival on June 18th, you can also stream the film on Hulu and Amazon Prime. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about an Atlanta chamber music extravaganza that is a virtual gift. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? 
Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.